Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Madison Pierce returns, and we do basically a mailbag episode. We put it out on social media. We asked people to send in questions, and so we had a ton of good things come in that we talked about today, so I hope you'll enjoy it. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation, their study Bibles, commentaries, and all kinds of resources that they offer. And now, the listener question episode with Madison Pierce. But first, no big deal. All right, Madison Pierce is here, and we are going to do a listener question. Uh, Twitter, most of the questions came from Twitter, uh, and it's going to be great because we've already been trolling each other uh, this morning, so we're like perfectly <laughs> warmed up and ready to go. Yep, we're set. Yep. So, um, okay, we're going to have we've we've got a lot of really good questions. Had uh, several people direct message me, some to Madison, some public replies on Twitter. Uh, we're not going to answer all of them. Uh, for various reasons. But what we tried to do was bring together, there's a lot of questions that were overlaps, a lot of questions about theological interpretation, the Trinity, Hebrews and Revelation, things that you and I talk about a lot. I think everybody assumes that that's basically the only thing that we can or want to talk about, <laughs> which is yes. uh, which is fine. But uh, we are sort of one trick ponies when it comes down to it uh, on this podcast. So we got a lot of questions about that. Uh, please don't let me in with you, but okay. Okay. I am a one trick pony. You are a, yeah, just the breadth of your scholarship is, is unbelievable. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Just all kinds of ways you can talk about Hebrews. It's really impressive. Um, so, okay. First question, is the new perspective still new? Should we call it something else? Is it still helpful? What can we gain from it? Et cetera, et cetera. So what are your thoughts? Again, we haven't prepared this at all like normal. So this could go really badly or this could yeah. be really interesting. Um, but new perspective, go. Most of this podcast, we're going to be talking about pre-modern and patristic exegesis. So in that sense, yeah, I'd say that the new perspective is still new, but in terms of, you know, other kinds of things, yeah, I suppose that it's starting to get a bit old, but it's really not the newest thing in Pauline studies anymore, uh, not even the newest thing in terms of Paul's relationship with his uh, backgrounds or, or, you know, his, his cultural context. Um, and so that's where uh, Paul within Judaism school, so to speak, I, I use scare quotes there, uh, comes in. So I think what the new perspective did was to kind of uh, help us to understand more about early early Jewish literature, to understand Paul within his Jewish context. You know, some of its best um, insights have been taken up by others who have still jettisoned the kind of label or moniker of uh, new perspective, and some of them have completely set aside the kind of quest or whatever. Others have have kind of entered into this uh, Paul within Judaism school. But um, overall, I think that Pauline studies is much uh, better off for new perspective, even though I certainly don't adhere to it. But to reiterate so that I don't get into trouble, I think that the new perspective did well to push against a kind of workspace understanding of Judaism to really encourage us to think of Paul as a Jewish author 
and you know speaking within a predominantly jewish context i think those things make our readings of the new testament better but that doesn't mean that we have to take up his kind of under or the new perspective understanding on justification and various other kind of things yeah i think um on the very first episode of church grammar tom schreiner and i talked about this and i asked him as mm -hmm. you know somebody who's obviously not a huge imbiber of new perspective views or theology i just said hey you know leading evangelical Pauline scholar, what, what do you think about New Perspective? How has it been helpful? And he said, he said, like, you, you can't really talk about Pauline scholarship anymore. You can't really do a lot of work in New Testament scholarship without some of the insights from New Perspective. He was like, it's just become part of the parlance in some ways, mm -hmm. particularly, like you said, I mean, I think you nailed all the ones that are that are there, right? There's a big difference between E.P. Sanders and Dunn and N.T. Wright, for example. There's overlaps, but there's obviously a difference. You know, N.T. Wright has popularized it. Uh, among evangelicals in particular, and I think most most evangelicals who are in biblical scholarship appreciate N.T. Wright at some level, at varying degrees, but at some level, right, appreciate yeah. what he's done and what he's brought to the table, particularly the, the idea of workspace salvation uh, in the Old Testament, some of those kind of things, the continuity of scripture, continuity of what Jesus comes to do. I think all that stuff's really helpful, and it seems to me that most people have more or less adopted at least some of those views, or at least take them very seriously and, and have to reckon with them. It's not just sort of a thing that could be dismissed as you know, liberal or whatever. I mean, some people do that, of course. That's but right. Yeah, I think that some of the conversations we've had about theological interpretation, we talk about being kind of downstream of some of those like technical conversations, even though we, you and I have had some of those, but similar in terms of the Pauline literature that we're, we're working off of the assumptions that the new perspective put in place. Something somebody asked was favorite commentaries on Hebrews and Revelation. Uh, and Glenn Butner had also asked patristic commentaries, patristic writings on Revelation and Hebrews. So why don't you start with Hebrews? What are your favorite, let's say your top three commentaries on Hebrews, and then anything you've got from the patristic era, uh, medieval, early church era? Yeah, um, let's see. So my favorite three, um, I love Harry Attridge from the Hermeneia series. I think Hermeneia is kind of hit or miss, but Attridge's commentary is excellent. Um, he's got some just really rich reflections, some of which, you know, don't align with my own understandings of scripture, but he really does lean into the theology and has some excellent stuff about early Jewish literature and even Greco-Roman um, literature as well. And so I really appreciate that. I love Craig Castor. I think he has some great stuff. The introduction to his commentary is just so rich and the way that he traces kind of trends in Hebrew scholarship through the ages is really cool um, and fruitful. Um, and then I love Gary Cockrell's commentary, um, and it, it's certainly one that you can't not use at this point because it's the most recent really kind of technical commentary on Hebrews. Um, honorable mention to um, my colleague Dana Harris's commentary um, in the Exegetical Guides to the Greek New Testament series. I think that's a pretty uh, niche commentary series, you know, it's for working with the Greek text. Um, and it's pretty selective on other stuff. But if you're if you are trying to translate Hebrews for the first time, then I would definitely check out uh, Dr. Harris's work um, to Glenn's question. Uh, shout out to Glenn. I would say that um, I'm not a huge fan of some of the earliest commentaries that we have. And I'm really eager to see Cyril's commentary whenever it's actually translated, because I do really appreciate Cyril. But, you know, John Chrysostom's stuff is not my favorite. Um, so I would say that probably um, I personally think that Athanasius and Irenaeus are really shaped by Hebrews um, in some uh, more implicit ways. And so while we may not call them commentators on Hebrews in the kind of proper sense, 
a lot of the shapes of their discussions clearly reflect Hebrews. Yeah. And you don't like Chrysostom because he assumes that Paul's the author, right? That's your, that's your big right. Well, it's not just that because obviously that's the case in a, a number of, um, you know, pre-modern commentaries. It's that um, that assumption really shapes the way that he reads Hebrews. And so, you know, I, I was sharing with you before that the the very first line of any of his homilies is quoting um, Romans 5. Uh, and so I think that that's, that kind of sets the stage for what's going to come. It's Hebrews in conversation. And you you know, you've heard me say a number of times that we really do need to give Hebrews its own space because the argument is distinctive to Pauline literature. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. You brought up Athanasius, which is funny because you and I flip the. I say Irenaeus and Athanasius, and you say Irenaeus and Athanasius, which I tell all my students: say Athanasius if you want to sound fancy, uh, but say Irenaeus if you want to say it right. So we're both halfway there, I guess. Uh, I think I say both of those like Lewis says them. So I'll stick with where I'm at. Oh, uh, okay. That's fine. John Bear says Irenaeus. So now we've got a, a West-East battle there, which I don't want to get in the middle of right now. So, um, okay. So <laughs> Athanasius though is a good example, right? Because in his, like in Against the Arians, for example, he uses um, Hebrews 1, 3, the radiance of God's glory as one of his arguments for eternal generation, right? So that's where you can see it a little bit more implicitly in some of those categories being brought in, even if it's not a full scale uh, kind of commentary or whatever, so. That's right. And I mean, all the discussions about the kind of sun and light and that kind of mutual relationship, uh, I, I personally think is shaped by Hebrews quite a bit, but anyways. Yeah, I think I'm Hebrews fast. 1 and John 1 are about as influential as maybe anything else on the language of Nicaea, for sure. So, um, mm -hmm. And good job shouting out your boss there, uh, Dr. Harris. That was, that was a good move. Um, I don't have to, mine hasn't written any commentaries on Revelation, so I don't have to worry about it personally. It works out. So, um, okay. So Revelation. Yeah, I was, I was looking at my shelf here. Um, I mean, Greg Beals, uh, GK Beals was probably one of the most influential on me. I don't take all of his yeah, moves, but um, like in terms of understanding the Old Testament sort of uh, background of Revelation, how Revelation uses the Old Testament. Uh, particularly the prophets. I mean, I, I don't think you can read Revelation without understanding that. And I think Beale is as good as anybody and as thorough as anybody. Again, I think in my dissertation, I, I disagree maybe a little bit with his categories of citation versus illusion and stuff like that. But not, I mean, it's just kind of nitpicking, right? Um, I think it's really helpful. I mean, you, you know, he's got the what 1200 page one, then he's got the quote unquote shorter one that's like 600 pages. Um, and then he's got his, you know, his Sheffield work, which I think was his dissertation, if yeah. I'm not, I'm not mistaken um yeah, john's right. use of the old testament so yeah super super influential on on uh what i did ian paul's uh new one from tyndale is great partially mm -hmm. i like it because he is a you know legit biblical scholar who's also doing a lot of theological commentary i mean i think he has he, he does have i don't think he does have a line in there that says that revelation is the most trinitarian book in, in the new testament which i was like man that's a that's a claim and for a guy who does Trinity and Revelation, I love that claim. So, uh, but he does a lot of good work there, um, does a lot of good sort of theological work there. I mean, obviously, Bauckham's little introduction is just like unassailable at this point. I mean, it's just nobody's been able to to top it. I really like Kester's as well. You mentioned Kester, <laughs> but I really like Kester's as well. I mean, he's he's just so good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You say Osborne? I like, yeah, I love Osborne's Baker, but I'm a little biased. He's another, he was one of my professors. So, yeah, Dr. O. No, it's it's very good. I used it. Um, Schreiner is writing the new version of that in the Baker series. I think he said it publicly the other day. Um, so it'll be interesting yeah. to see Schreiner. You know, he's done a commentary on half the New Testament epistles at this point. So um, I'll be interested yeah. to see that one come out as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my shelf and I can I can name a bunch of others. I mean, David Ani, 
his three volume. I mean, it's, it's just, you know how I make fun of biblical studies sometimes. And it's, it is the peak of 20th century biblical studies. Everything's a background. Everything's influenced by something else, but it's just like, it's insane how specific and in-depth he is. So it's been really helpful for me. I've used it for sure in a lot of ways. So um, he's a perfect example of what I troll and also what I appreciate in the same vein. So um, as far as patristic interpreters, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus both use uh, Revelation a lot. Um, they're sort of, I tell my students, they're kind of the OG premillennialists. Um, everybody says that, you know, the early church were all amillennialists, but that's not really true until Augustine. Uh, and so um, for a lot of reasons that we could get into if we want to have some fun having that conversation. But uh, Justin and Irenaeus have some really interesting sort of premillennial, uh, you know, pre-premillennial, they're sort of proto-premillennial views. Uh, on the on the book of Revelation that are actually really good. Um, they're not sort of like your standard left behind weird stuff, you know, that, that some people uh, kind of associate any premillennialism with. But they also they have like a really rich theological account of who Christ is and what that means for the church and those kind of things. So I find those really helpful. Uh, Andrew of Caesarea uh, probably wrote the first kind of like legitimate full scale Revelation commentary, which is really good. I've used it a lot. So um let's see which one of these next ones which one of these do you want to do next that we haven't done yet look at the list and tell me which one you want to you want to kick off hmm. we could talk about um or we could talk about uh the question about pre-modern exegesis i don't think is on this list but the how have the debates of 2016 kind of shaped scholarship in their wake or something like that yeah i forgot i forgot to add that one that was a question that we both saw and really liked um Mm-hmm. Yeah, so somebody asked, you know, there's a there's sort of a a reignited interest in some circles in pre-modern exegesis and the patristic theology. And I think the question was, do we think that some of that was influenced by 2016 and the Trinity debate and the eternal subordination debate and stuff like that? Um, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think for sure, I don't think it's um I don't think it's hard to prove, whether it's online or in recent publications, that that conversation changed. The evangelical conversation in general, because you had uh, Trinity scholars who were basically saying like, oh, I never really taught eternal subordination, but some of the language that I use does sort of indicate that. So maybe I need to be more careful about the language that I use. Uh, and then there were some who held to eternal subordination. And then in 2016, they were like, oh, that's not the view I hold anymore. Right. And so they were influenced by a lot of the conversation. So I think on the one hand, there was certainly a reignited interest that I think has come from that, where people were able to really engage the church fathers really for the first time as evangelicals and see people engaging them in a sustained way and say, oh, this is, oh, this is a good way to read scripture, good way to do the doctrine of the Trinity. I think on the other hand, though, part of the reason why the debate happened is because there was already a pretty big kind of groundswell. When I got into the PhD program at Ridley in 2014, me and Emerson and Stamps and Winston Hopman were already talking about Baptist renewal stuff and talking about retrieving. So I'm not saying we were ahead of the game or anything, but like those conversations, we were starting to be influenced by reading books that were starting to have that conversation. Timothy George has been having that conversation for 20 years, right? Um, yeah. And then I start studying with Bird, and one of Bird's first question is, where do you stand on this issue? Before, again, before the debate happens, uh, Bird's already talking about it in his evangelical theology. Um, so I think there was already a lot of that happening. A lot of that was already happening in, in Presbyterian circles and Anglican circles too. I mean, it's certainly Baptists were in some ways latecomers to that. Actually, we were not latecomers. We were perfectly fine when Baptists, uh, when Baptists started, then we lost our way and then we're coming back. Uh, so if you read John Gill and some of the early Baptists, you, they're quoting the fathers all the time. So all that to say, I think there was, there was already a movement in the early 2000s toward retrieval. I think Colette Anatolios's um, Retrieving Nicaea in 2011 was an extremely influential book on a lot of people. 
And so I think that kind of stuff was already happening. Um, I mean, if you think about even the movement of uh, TIS in general, right, uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, you already had people like Sites and others drawing on Childs doing this 50 years ago of why, why should we care about the early church? Why should we care about pre-modern exegesis? So all that to say, I think, I think it was already happening. I think 2016 was the crisis point, right? Where I think all of a sudden everybody was like, oh, okay, like this needs to be part of my diet as a, as an interpreter, I think in a way that it probably wasn't before, but I'd be interested in your thoughts too. Cause you did, you were doing some of this work as well around the same time. So. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I can speak about the kind of trends in evangelicalism because first I was at Ted's and we actually had the pleasure of having a patristic scholar for a short period of time uh, while I was here. And so, you know, although I'm pretty sure that the kind of anti-patristic stuff was in the air still, it didn't occur to me and it, it wasn't kind of um, explicit for me at that point. And then I was in Britain and working with Francis and, and Lewis and, you know, pretty early on in my project, you know, by the end of my first year. So around the time you were starting, um, it was very clear that there was going to be a, a huge uh, component of my work that was going to draw upon early Christian literature. So, I mean, my first chapter was, is the, you know, Prospological Exegesis one that has quite a bit, um, and it didn't really die down after that. Yeah, when the debate happened, I was in Britain, and uh, a little confounded, um, but at the same time not, because, um, you know, that was the world that I was coming out of. Um, but it, yeah, watching it kind of erupt in the way that it did was really interesting for me. And so um, all this to say that um, whenever there's pushback, including the pushback that I've personally gotten, um, it really surprises me because I, I think part of me still kind of thinks that, yeah, this is the historic way. Um, and and there are threads of this throughout uh, Christian history. And and some of the best work that, that we typically see draws upon uh, early Christian literature. I think that the anti-patristic or the kind of skepticism towards pre-modern exegesis is, is completely unfounded. And um, I'm, I, I tried to engage with it charitably, um, but I find it difficult. Well, let's, let's let that flow into some other cluster of questions that we got. Um, we got a good amount of questions about uh, critiques of TIS. Why are some people uh, skeptical of theological interpretation or prosopological exegesis? What are some of the critiques? Where do they come from? Why do they happen? Um, so that might be a good kind of dovetail there because a lot of this conversation obviously is, is surrounding retrieving uh, pre-modern tools and, and interpretive methods and reading strategies and stuff like that. So you want to just let that follow in a little bit and say, what are, what are some of the critiques of TIS? Prospological pre-modern exegesis that you've seen, and I think you're you're a good test case for this because you're in the uh, you're a modernist biblical scholar who um, you know has a canonic hermeneutic. So um, I think you're the perfect person to ask. So, uh, but really, like, what what are some of the things you've seen? How dare you? What are some what are some critiques, particularly of prospological, that you've seen from biblical scholars that, and then maybe more broadly TIS and some of the pre-modern stuff? I, I think that the biggest thing is that there tends to be a misunderstanding about how compatible prosopological exegesis is with typology, which is the, the favorite word for evangelicals for how the testaments relate to each other. I, I don't want to bring heat on myself by actually critiquing some of that literature, which I think is very valid, um, but I'll just say that you can believe in both 
I'm here to offer you the good news that you can use prosopological exegesis for all of your typological needs. Because what it's effectively doing is saying that the New Testament authors saw a connection between Jesus or, you know, some kind of New Testament kind of truth with quotation marks and another text in scripture. And so what do they do? They use this, this exegetical method, prosopological exegesis, to bring that together or to bring that to the fore. So this doesn't diminish uh, providential work of God in connecting those things. That does not diminish the inspiration of the author, but it acknowledges that our authors, the human authors of scripture were also involved in the process and that their assumptions and methods and et cetera, et cetera, um, are being used. That actually, that's good because it meant that the people they were writing to didn't think they were bonkers. <laughs> Just throw your hands up. Are you, is that, was that, yeah. a, were you passing the ball to me? Was that, I don't know that was <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's my flabbergasted. Like, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of the critiques of prosopological, more broadly TIS, pre-modern, a lot of it does come from this assumption that if you care about allegory or even typology in some circles, right? I mean, some, some are like no typology, no unity in the canon whatsoever, which is a probably a different conversation. But even among evangelicals who would say, I, I agree with typology, I agree with some of these kind of things, unity of the canon, uh, divine providence, inspiration. A lot of it is when you get into typology or allegory, stuff like that, that it can be sort of not what the human author intended, or it sort of uh, takes away the quote unquote literal sense and stuff like that, right? So it goes different ways. There's the not caring what the author thought version of it. There's also the hyper focus on what the author thought or may have thought, which I would argue we don't have a lot of access to outside of the text that they've left us. That's another concern, right? Well, now are you saying that everything is allegorical and there's no historical truth? Jesus wasn't a real person. Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. Um, God didn't really create the earth, whatever, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a whole host of ways that that can go out of, out of whack there. But I think you're right. You know, if you think about a good, thick understanding of divine providence and inspiration, it's, it shouldn't be surprising when Paul says the rock in the wilderness was Christ. Right. Like that's a, there's a great example there where Paul does it. And, and OK, you want to make the argument that only Paul can do it because the Holy Spirit inspired him and we can't do it. OK, well, whatever. But when you're talking about a the, the theological point, if God has created all things, if God is providential over all things, if everything is at the will of God and he can literally, uh, you know, the incarnation is the greatest uh, metaphysical break. Uh, in all of history, right? Like that's the, that's the one time where you can say, if you didn't think God could do something that, that seems impossible, look at the incarnation, right? If he can do those kind of things, how can the rock in the wilderness not be an actual rock that actually split open and actually fed the Israelites or actually, you know, watered the Israelites, watered? That's not the right word. Anyway, gave the Israelites water um, <laughs> Dogs. and, yeah. and also be Christ, right? Um, or, yeah. you know, when Paul uses it in Galatians four, you know, he actually uses the Greek word allegoromena there and says this, this too is an allegory. And all he's saying there is that there is a spiritual meaning. There's a deeper meaning than just what you see on the surface, but he's not trying to get rid of the meaning he's not saying the wilderness wasn't a real thing or that it didn't mean anything to the israelites that it was all just waiting for jesus to make sense of it and so i think that's where a lot of critique of pre-modern is oh they're all allegorizing they all don't care about the text the problem with that is is the is the authors uh, go and read them right i mean you go and read even origin who um you know i like to defend sometimes i, I know origin's a weirdo i get it like we all get it like he was called a weirdo in his own day he was called a weirdo by people after him we get it origin's a weirdo 
But yeah. if you read Origins, um, like book four, for example, of his um, On First Principles, he says in there, after yeah. he walks through his threefold sense and after he walks through the allegory and stuff, he says, and so that you're not confused and you don't think that we don't care about the history, I believe that this all, this stuff all historically happened, right? So he, he even like goes out of his way to say, I care about the actual historical events, the literal quote unquote sense of it. But he says, for example, um, you know, in Acts chapter 10, he says, uh, Peter would have withheld the gospel from the Gentiles if he kept only his literal reading, because literally he thought they don't, they don't, they break the law because they don't eat, the, they eat meat that we're not allowed to eat. Therefore, they can't be Christians. And what Origen says is you have to have some sort of allegorical spiritual reading there uh, to understand the Gentiles can come in. And in fact, that's what God tells Peter right? Like you're, you're, you're missing the point. You're reading it too literally or whatever you're missing kind of what I'm doing in Christ and the spirit. So now I'm ranting, but I think that is some of the concern now. And, and the other thing is too, that we, we flatten out the biblical, the, the patristic authors and, and just pretend like they all thought the same thing and wrote the same ways and said all the same things and had all the same interpretations, which is not true either. Right. Um, so yeah. you can read different people throughout church history and see them handle different, the same text, a hundred different ways, which happens in modern evangelical scholarship too, in some sense, right? Um, I have a couple of things that I might want to add. I don't think I disagree with you, but I, I think that the dichotomy between like human and divine author sometimes ends up in some some unfortunate places. And I don't think that's what you're doing necessarily, but, but you are drawing on some trends in scholarship. So the couple of things I would want to push back on are one, I think that there's a way of understanding what Paul is doing that acknowledges the kind of uh, stuff in the air in early Jewish literature that kind of sets up the reading in 1 Corinthians 10, for example. I mean, I have an essay on this, so that's, you know, I'm glad you picked that and teed, teed me up. Um, but there's stuff going on in early Jewish literature that makes that a reasonable reading from Paul's perspective. From our perspective, it's like, I don't know what he's doing, or we can say like, you know, Paul can do what he likes or whatever. But, I, you know, I actually think that there are reasons in the, in the reception of the the uh, wilderness narrative that allows him to make that move and it be more reasonable with quotation marks to his audience. The other thing that I would say is that, um, what's I going to say? Oh, we, we do. We act like the um, early Christian authors are doing something absurd and that they are, it's only what we would call spiritual or allegorical readings or whatever, but actually that's not entirely true. I mean, they are spiritualizing. I'm not saying that that using that that adjective is, is inappropriate by any means, but they are actually using grammatical methods. They're looking at ambiguities within the text. They're seeing references to the nations and things like that. And so they are doing what we refer to as the historical grammatical method. They're looking at the text and they're seeing, does this allow me to understand what God is doing in a different way? No, I, I think that's that exactly sense. right. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it was kind of what I was saying with origin. But we, could, we could take it further oh, and totally. just say, you know, yeah, they're, they're trying to, they're, they're using, they're looking at biblical patterns and texts and word usage and different things like that and saying, what is a re yeah? What's a reasonable way? That's actually a really good, I think, word for it. What is a reasonable interpretation of this? The biblical authors seem to be doing that. Again, you can say that they're inspired by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit just gives them that. But also, nobody actually operates that way. Like, uh, I, I'll tell my students, for example, you know, sometimes we we sort of view it as like Paul is writing his letters on like a Holy Spirit acid trip. You know, he's just sort of like in a daze, and he's like, right. 
but he, but he says like, say hello to my friend Phoebe or whatever, you know, it's like, no, that's not God. That's not God coding something in there. It, it's just, Paul just wants you to say hi to his friend while, when, when you get the letter, you know, it's like, these are actual real human yeah. beings, right? I think that there are, and we, we may disagree about this a little bit. I think there are limits to how much we can know about their access to, to certain Jewish texts or, or whatever. I, I think there's limits to what we can yeah. do with that. But I do think yeah. that we have to take that seriously because we do have to recognize that uh, these people are readers of scripture right? Like the, the biblical authors are readers of scripture. The, the reason why they come to the um, deduction, you could just say, let's just say historically speaking, historically speaking, why the first Christians come to this deduction that Jesus is God in the flesh is because they are good readers of the Old Testament scripture. And they, the only way that they're going to see that is through whatever you want to call it, typology, allegory, spiritual readings, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But they're still doing that in light of the text, right? So yeah. Matthew's like, oh, Isaiah seven fourteen. He's going to be born of a virgin, God with us. That sounds familiar. I wonder who that could be about, right? Like that's that's just like on its surface, obviously good reading of scripture. And so I think that's where we have to be careful not to, and that's what the fathers are doing, whether you like everything that they do or not. I mean, if you read Justin, Irenaeus, Origen, Athanasius, Gregory, Augustine, whoever, what are they all doing? They're all saying we are trying to protect the apostolic deposit. We're just trying to do what the apostles told us to do, right? Now, in Irenaeus's case, Hey, I'm basically a grandson of the faith to, um, to John. I'm just trying to do what John told Papias and, and Ignatius and the others to do, right? I mean, he'll say that kind of stuff. And so we have to recognize that they are trying to do what the apostles did. So, I mean, it's obviously a bigger conversation there about hermeneutics and what we can and can't do and whatever. But I think that's where the sort of throwing out the pre-modern exegesis, theological readings, whatever, kind of throwing those things out is missing the fact that the only reason why you confess Christ in the way that you do is because they read scripture that way. You know, like you want all the answers to the Nicene test, but you don't want any of the methodology to get there. And I think we have to be really careful not to do that. I totally agree. And I think that some of the readings that emphasize the kind of historical meaning of the first text or the earlier text and and are uncomfortable with some of the things that we are talking about, the move from first text to Christ isn't any less fanciful. That, that's what actually makes me a little crazy. Uh, we just use different language to describe it. And so the kind of lobbying, like we don't take scripture seriously, um, it, it makes me a little angry. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, and I think there is a way, you know, I, so I'm, I'm teaching undergrads, I'm teaching some grads, mostly undergrads, and thinking through how do I teach them to read the Bible, you know, and there is something to like origin, for example, talks about there are sort of levels of spiritual maturity that you have to have to read scripture in certain ways. So he'll, he'll say, for example, like, yeah, there are some sort of quote unquote common lay Christians who just don't understand how to read the Bible, quote unquote, allegorically. He's like, that's okay. Like that is, that's not the make or break of whether or not you're a Christian, right? He does acknowledge that there is some growth and maturity that has to take place. There's, there's a, obviously you have to understand your Bible well to be able to make connections in the first place, right? You're not going to see those connections if you don't know. So even origin talks about that a little bit. And so like with students, I'm always trying to figure out, trying to be careful of, I want to show them how different types of readings can be helpful and not helpful. Uh, I have a colleague who said, um, I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's a a really uh, funny analogy, but he says, you know, typology and allegory um, is like a chainsaw and you hand it to a nine-year-old and and the nine-year-old will cut their arm off. But then you'll say, well, a chainsaw cuts down trees and we can build buildings and libraries and, and, and hospital beds and everything with this chainsaw. Because of a chainsaw, we can do all these great things with wood. But you don't want to give a nine-year-old a chainsaw because they'll cut their arm off. You have to have somebody who actually knows what they're doing to use the chainsaw. And so he says, in a similar way, typology and allegory, 
is not for everyone all the time in every way, right? And there is a level of like, yeah. you have to understand scripture well and have a good theological perspective, I think, to do it well and to not do it in weird, weird, weird ways, right? That could be really weird. And just like finding Jesus under every hat and ignoring the historical context and those things. So I think there are definitely dangers we have to be careful of. But I just don't think we yeah. can read the New Testament legitimately. And I don't think we actually do. Even those who are critical of it don't read the New Testament that way. You have to do typology, allegory, spiritual readings to understand it. You just have to. You can't get around it. Yeah. Or you have to just say that the New Testament authors are capricious to some degree, that you know they're not employing some kind of valid method. And we, I, I personally, you know, I'm not okay with that. And I don't think you are either. So, um, but yeah, we have to understand what they're doing or accept that they're doing something absolutely fantastical. And I mean that in a negative way. So, okay, let's see, what do we have here? How about, um, somebody asked about, does the incarnation add to the Trinity? I thought that was an interesting question. Um, if Christ has put on flesh and if God is spirit, what do we do with the incarnation, right? Is there a, for, is there a, a human nature added to the divine nature, all that kind of stuff. So that'd be a fun conversation. So, uh, you and I wrote a, um, you know, a really popular and well-received uh, thing on this for Christianity Today a while back. So it was, it was well-received by 98% of people. If we think through the doctrine of incarnation, here's some kind of guardrails I think that we can have. Here's some things early church worked through. A couple of things you want, you want to think about, you know, part of the way that the early church talks about the doctrine of incarnation, and I think biblically, I mean, when I say the early church, I'm, I'm usually also saying biblically, because what they're doing is reading biblical texts, right, and drawing together themes and, and things like that. And one of the things that they want to do is say that you can't say that Jesus is only part God and part man, right? Because all the descriptions about who he is uh, as a, the divine son, the ability to forgive sins, the, 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 the person through whom all things are created and by whom all things are created. Like that's God language and half God can't do that or else you've got Gnosticism and other kinds of, of, of things, right? So you can't say he's not fully God in any way, shape or form, because then you lose um, the power of what he said, the literal power and authority of what he says. You also can't say that he's only half human. As Gregory Nazianzus says, if he only healed half of what Adam broke, uh, then he only saved half of mankind. Right. What, what he, he cannot, what is it? Uh, uh, what is not assumed is not healed. Right. Yeah. And so he argues that against Apollinarius, who says that Jesus is fully human in every way, except he has a divine mind and a divine intellect. Uh, because the reason why we sin is because we have a fallen will and intellect. And so flesh is the problem. Jesus gets a divine mind. Now he can fix everything. Uh, fun, funny enough, Apollinarius is responding to Arius and saying, Arius, you're a heretic. Now, let me tell you, uh, let me tell you what's orthodox. Yeah. Yeah. But that response of Gregory says that, no, even the human mind has to be healed. All of humanity has to be healed. Right. So yeah. that's your first principles of the incarnation. He's fully God and fully man uh, because the Bible describes it that way. But even as you think about the logical implications of that, him being 50, 50 or Thor or something like that, um, the sort of like demigod, whatever, he, he can't do the things he says he can do. Right. And, and the, the descriptions about him are not true. So you have that part of it. So what the fathers would do is say, because of this mysterious union uh, of divinity and humanity, nothing is added to the Trinity because nothing has changed about the divine nature of the son and his relationship to the father and the spirit and everything else that goes with that. So what they would say is that he, he you know, puts on flesh. He doesn't become flesh. He doesn't mix with flesh. He puts on flesh. Right. It's a thing that is added to him. And it's added in such a way that it doesn't harm his divinity. Now, some of that we have to lean into the mystery, right? We have to say we 
this is the most unique event in human history. We can't totally make sense of it. But the implications are that like a lot of times that the patristic authors are saying, here's what we can't say. If we say this, what kind of damage does it do to biblical uh, doctrine? So if you were to say that the Trinity added a human, literally added a human nature to the divine nature, now you're saying that the divine nature can change, can become weak, can add to itself, something like that. Well, that doesn't work, biblically speaking. God's already perfect. God's already whole. God lacks nothing. So that can't work, right? So you start doing these sort of uh, some apophatic or negative uh, deductions and say, well, there are certain things that we can't say or else it causes bigger problems. Uh, Nestorianism, you know, part of how we get the Council of Ephesus and then the Council of Chalcedon is Nestorius wants to separate the divine nature from the human nature and say, well, uh, Jesus was fully divine and human all the way to the point of suffering. But when he's suffering, it's not the word that suffering is just the human. And so that's where Cyril says, no, actually, you're adding to the Trinity. So, so what the fathers want to do is say the incarnation doesn't add to the Trinity because the divine nature is unchanging. It's perfect. It's whole. It can't be added to. It can't be taken away from. So that is still in place regardless of what happens. And then in the mystery of the union, we have a full human nature that the son takes on without losing uh, anything about his divine nature. And so the humanity piece is obviously for us, right? For us and our salvation. It's, it's how we are united to Christ. So then, you know, one of the other implications, I think, I think this may have been in that question or in another question. What do we do with Jesus being risen and being in heaven with a human body? Because that really complicates mm -hmm. things, right? Because now you've got a physical mm -hmm. and a spiritual together in a way that we don't have, right? Since Genesis 3. And so how I usually try to answer that is to say that um, part of, I mean, one of the main points of the incarnation is to bring heaven and earth back together, right? It is to, to, to pull together what has been brought asunder by sin. What the what with Jesus being in heaven, actually, that is the way it's going to be in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth, uh, you know, heaven comes down to earth, you now have physical and spiritual no distinction between them uh, that we have now and Jesus being a physical literal man standing in heaven is actually the precursor to what eternity is going to be like, which is all of what Jesus does, right? He's reconciling all things, he's making all things new, and precursoring and prefiguring all the things that are coming. Um, so the easiest way to answer is to say that he is fully man. He has to continue to be fully man. If he, if he drops his humanity at some point, then we have no eternal union with him, right? That, that's part of the, him putting on flesh. And so, um, we can't, so, so you don't want to add to the, if you add to the Trinity, here's all the problems. One way to not cause a problem is to say, this is a mysterious union that makes sense of the biblical data without being able to reconcile things that are basically ir irreconcilable for us. Yeah, I think my concern was the reason I was smirking is um, I felt like I could say what wasn't true, um, but I wasn't quite sure if I could offer something constructive. So I'm actually glad that you and I had a similar kind of um, thought on that. The one thing I would want to add is that, um, and I, obviously some of this comes out of Hebrews, and I, I've been writing on it in the last couple of weeks, Jesus ascends as a perfected human. And so he is no longer at that point beset with the same kind of weakness. So he is human absolutely through and through. He doesn't shed his humanity by any means, but his humanity is perfected and transformed. And so it's there where he is kind of the true image of God. Um, and I think that that alleviates some of the tension of him ascending or, or the, some of the perceived tension, I guess is a better way of saying that. Yeah, no, I think, and I think that's right. I mean, you do have to do a lot of negative, you have to do a lot of apophatic work when you're talking about the Trinity in general. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and then the fathers will say, and I think this is right. I mean, obviously you can do constructive stuff because you've got 66 books 
Uh, I mean, you've got a lot of revelation that you can say positive, constructive things about, you know, so it's not like you just are are working in the negative, but the negative does give you guardrails for the constructive comments. Right. Um, So I think it's, I think it's Gregory of Nyssa talks about, you know, Deuteronomy six, four is sort of this guiding principle that sort of Mm -hmm. um, that unity of the father, son, and spirit is always sort of your default foundation guiding principle for everything else. So anything that you say about God, anything you say about Christ's humanity, any of those kind of things, those are always going to be um, chastened by unity of God, the oneness of God. And so you've always got to be able to come back to that. So Gregory will say like, it's not just about numbers. It's not just one plus yeah. one equals three. It's a oneness right. or a threeness. It's mm-hmm. it's a a way of speaking. You know, it's not just sort of a math equation. And so I think that's helpful as well when you think about the incarnation of the Trinity. Is you have the mystery of Him being fully God and fully man, but that part of Him that that part of saying He is fully God is both a positive and a negative statement because now you can say because He's fully God, I can't say these ten things. That won't work. That's right. right? Um, and yeah. um, even when we talk about His you know, divine will and human will and some of those conversations, you still have to always say that is God. You know, yeah. did God die on the cross? Well, in a sense, yes. The second person of the Trinity and his mode of operation, if you will, um, died on the cross. Like you can't not say that or else you have, you split Jesus into two persons, which is a much bigger problem. And so all those kind of yeah. questions, I think, you know, there's a mystery there, but the problems, the problems with denying it are way bigger than the things we can say constructively in the mystery that we leave at the end. I think that's right. And, you know, I, I actually, I, you know, I want to kind of stay in a, po- a more positive thing about apathetic theology, because I think that that those guardrails are really important. And in fact, I mean, when in the 20, 2016 debate and, you know, some of the ensuing discussion, I mean, uh, that's why I think, uh, you know, another shout out to Glenn Butner. I mean, his work on will in particular, where he said, we no, one of our guardrails is that the will of God cannot be divided. And so if that's true, then what are we still talking about? And so this isn't, that's not to say that, you know, we can completely just shut the door on all of the discussions that that came afterward, but that that was a really important move uh, theologically. Um, And if we had started with what was absolutely true of God, um, then maybe we would have uh, had fewer misgivings or mistake missteps. I like your mention of Glenn, because both of us, when he sent that in, we were texting about which topics we want to talk about. And we both said verbatim, I love Glenn. So we love yeah. you, Glenn. Um, and Glenn listens to the podcast. So I love him more because he listens. He won't listen to this one. I'm going to wait and see if he ever responds or not. But I think the only thing we haven't touched on is themes in Hebrew. Somebody asked about the Exodus theme in Hebrew and themes in Hebrews. Uh, not Hebrew yeah. singular, but Hebrews. Um, so I would be interested yeah. to hear, I mean, you don't see prosopological exegesis as the defining guiding whatever of, of Hebrews. So what would you say are a handful of really important guiding themes? I think that, so the question was specifically about the theme of the Exodus. And so I do absolutely think that the author imagines the audience um, on the same kind of trajectory so that he he portrays them as the people of God. Um, and as the people of God, there are those who have traveled with God out of Egypt through the wilderness. And actually, the way that he portrays them is that they are still in the wilderness. Um, and s- some scholars are going to portray this differently. Of course, Kezaman is the wandering. Uh, Kard is a pilgrimage. Um, I would think of it as kind of a journeying. David Moffat has pushed back on some of this language more recently and has um said that it's best to think of it as waiting, that they're actually, you know, standing at the foot of the mountain 
um, waiting for Christ to return and kind of usher them up into the festal gathering uh, from Hebrews 12. So all that to say that um, I think those things were really important. So faithfulness in light of the revelation of God, um, both his gifts and his the revelation of, of who he is, and those things were really important in Hebrews. I just got a tweet a few minutes ago from uh, Tim Stanion, who asked what you think about John Owen's Hebrews commentary. Do you have any thoughts on John Owen's Hebrews commentary? I don't have any substantial thoughts, really. Um, so I've benefited from those who have worked more with Owen's commentary. I mean, um, uh, Bobby Jameson is, is is one, and then there are others who have written a bit on that. Um, but it's just not something that I've dug into a ton. Um, Puritanism is, is a bit out of my expertise. So, yeah. John Owen is is perhaps the best uh, in that era mm -hmm. on Trinity and Christology. I mean, he's pretty good. He's really good on it. So, uh, I assume Absolutely. that he's going to. I assume he's going to handle Hebrews at least relatively well theologically when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I've not I've not interacted with him much either. So, yeah. Okay, we had two uh, two kind of specific rapid fire. Although I think I want to add um, I want to add a third that we were talking about before we hit record. So somebody asked about <laughs> um, somebody asked about the Lord of the Rings remake. Is it Prime that's doing that? And I think you know um, Netflix has got yeah. the Narnia rights. Um, so yeah. what are your thoughts on these you know uh, secular evil liberal? I'm not, that's not what the people asking the question, but oh my um, goodness. What, do you, what do you think about these uh, potential remakes with Prime and Netflix? What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so I'll kind of answer this in a parallel way. So um, when I'm teaching, I love to bring in um, artwork from uh, famous artists that are reflecting on biblical themes. And so uh, last week I was teaching on uh, the passion in John. And so we had Salvador Dali's uh, inkblot, the Eke Homo, uh, you know, behold the man um, or hear the man and um, uh, or have uh, the raising of Lazarus by uh, Van Gogh. And, you know, Lazarus is, is obviously Van Gogh. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a ginger. <laughs> you're allowed to say that word. I don't know if you're allowed to say that word. Yeah. But. Yeah. On his, on his deathbed. And so um, what that does is uh, for me, it's, um, it can be beautiful because it's these people reflecting on the importance of God and they're not necessarily doing it in ways that we might appreciate um, being faithful to biblical narratives and all of that. Um, but I do want to give space for that. So part of me wants to say, those are our stories, leave them alone. Um, but at the same time, I think it's interesting for us to, to think about, you know, God is in the air. Um, you know, I, I don't mean that literally, of course, I mean, like, people are reflecting on who God is. And I think there's something meaningful about that. So anyways. Did you show them the botched Eke Homo? Um, did you ever see that? The person tried to reconstruct it? You need to look. look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. didn't show, you show, show that to them as right. a way. It's so good. To show them as a way to uh, not do it. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a lot of thoughts on this, but I was, I have thought about the Narnia one in particular. Um, you know, I think Netflix is doing all seven books. And mm -hmm. the only, the only, I mean, Netflix is pretty hit miss at times on things, you know, I think yeah. one thing that I, that I have hope for is that, um, you know, Doug Gresham, who runs the, Narn the, the Lewis Foundation, who is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, stepson, he has a really, really, at least in the past, up until very recently, unless it's changed, has had a really strong uh, voice in anything that is uh, appropriated by Lewis to anybody else. And so my hope is, is yeah. that 
he will have a lot of creative control to make sure it isn't some weird, you know, sort of um, sideways thing. Um, you know, I, I know the guys who worked on the C.S. Lewis study Bible, for example. And, uh, you know, for example, they, they talked about how he was very, very like, you can only do this. You can only do that. I've heard the guy, what's the guy's name that does the live action plays? He does like the screw tape one. I've seen a couple of them. McLean. Uh, yeah, oh I don't know. Anyway, the guy who does all, a bunch of the live actions, he did a phenomenal live action remake of uh, screw tape letters. It's really, really good that my oh, wife cool. and I went and saw. Um, but he has talked about that before too. Like you don't do anything without mm -hmm. Gresham's approval. So I'm hoping that that means that Netflix will have a lot of strict rules about what they can and can't do. All right, Madison. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. See ya.